Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Now, let's get started. In this week's episode, we play the second part of our conversation with Dr. Stephen Wellam, who has written a book called The Person of Christ, an Introduction. In the first episode, we talked about the historical development of this doctrine, and in this week's episode, we'll talk about a biblical presentation of this doctrine. Again, we hope this will be profitable to you. Yeah, thank you for that. You've spent uh, some time now uh, giving us the historical development of uh, the biblical doctrine of the person of Christ. But at the beginning of our show, you mentioned that uh, the most important foundation uh, for developing our doctrine of Christ is Scripture. So can you spend some time using Scripture to present the orthodox view of the person of Christ to our audience? Yeah, I mean, there's obviously a lot to talk about, so let me just hit uh, some of the key high points that, that really fit with um, the, how the later church uh, in, its, in its confessional standards picked up that, that very data, but this is the data that, that they worked with. Uh, I'll mention a few uh, crucial texts in terms of the New Testament and then sort of spell them out uh, one for one. But but what's very, very important to add is that you before you talk about any New Testament texts, as I've said before, is you, is you have to have the Old Testament. So that uh, in some sense to do Christology properly, you've got to start with Genesis 1.1, right? So uh, in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. So that, that's what we call the creator-creature distinction. That's the whole background to even understand the New Testament. God alone is God, uh, and everything else is creation. And so, you know, to talk eventually about the two natures of Christ and so on assumes that foundational creator-creature distinction, right? So as you work through the Old Testament, uh, we already have the seedbed for what we see in the New Testament. And what I mean by that is, well, we have the one true and living God, uh, creator-creature distinction, and we have uh, the important role of humans. So in Adam, uh, in a covenant relationship, right, he's called to obey, which he doesn't. Uh, and uh, we're given a promise, uh, thankfully, right, by, by God's sovereign grace and by his free choice, he promises uh, to redeem us, right? And you have that initial promise in Genesis 3.15, that uh, Adam has failed, but there God will provide uh, a seed of the woman. And uh, this will mean another human, right? So here's a kind of another Adam kind of imagery that will will carry out through scripture. So all the way from Genesis 3.15, we have the promise of a redeemer. And it's going to come out of the human race. It's going to be human. That's important. And that's what's going to ground, in some sense, the rationale for an incarnation, right? why the Son of God must take on our humanity. And as you work through the Old Testament, that promise gets unfolded. It takes on definition, clarity uh, through the biblical covenants, Noah, Abraham, Israel, David, and so on. And uh, we gain clarity that uh, eventually, uh, by the time you get to the prophets, we know of a human son who's coming. That's the whole messianic uh, thrust of scripture. Uh, He will be Abraham's greater son. He'll be greater than Isaac. He'll be ultimately the Davidic king, prophet, priest, king. Yet in the prophets, he will be the one who brings the rule and reign of God. And this is how eventually in the Old Testament, we have the son 
who's identified with the father. That first works in terms of father-son relationship, Yahweh, the king, the Lord, uh, to the human son. The human son particularly identified with the Davidic king, yet the Messiah, this human one, will also be identified with God. Think of Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. Uh, he will sit on David's throne, Isaiah 9, 7, but he will have the very titles of God. And of course, the age that he brings, the new covenant era, uh, the dawning of the kingdom, the bringing of the new creation, all of these are acts of God. Uh, he's the one who brings the fullness of forgiveness of sins that only the Old Testament system could typify and, and point forward to. So that's the seedbed to then the New Testament. So that already in the Old Testament, you're beginning to uh, look at uh, you know Psalm 110 and Psalm 45 and Psalm 2, which are speaking of the coming messianic king, but the king, think of Psalm 110, David's Lord also sits at God's right hand. In biblical thought, tied to the creator-creature distinction, this is another way of saying that the Messiah is, is, is God. Now, it's not clear in the Old Testament. The New Testament makes that clear. But as you come to the New Testament, right, this is what, you know, I'll start with John, uh, John 1, right? Uh, those relations of father-son and ultimately eternal son are picked up in the opening verses of John's gospel, right? So in the beginning, goes all the way back to Genesis. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God. So there's a relation, there's face-to-face -face distinction. Um, and word in John's gospel is referring to the son, right? There's the eternal son, the word who is with God, but also is God. And of course, that you were set up for that in the Old Testament, yet now it becomes clear. Here's the eternal son of the father, the father who has a son and also uh, the spirit, uh, the one who is the son who now, uh, who is, uh, who is God equal with, is God. So that's crucial, right? So John establishes the Trinitarian foundation built on the Old Testament. You can't think of Jesus apart from him being the eternal son. Who's God equal with the Father. And then you think of John 1.14. The Word became flesh, right? It's very important. Who is that Word? Well, the Word is the eternal Son, right? He's God the Son. But note, uh, and it's a very important Christological point that the church picked up, is that it's not technically the divine nature or the Father or the Spirit who became flesh. It was the second person of the Godhead, the Word, who became flesh. So the Word is eternally the Son, who's the divine Son, yet this is what we mean by he took to himself flesh, John's use of flesh is human nature. He took to himself a human body and soul. And this is where we get in John 1.14, um, one person, the Word, the Son, who has always been God, fully God, divine nature, who now has a second nature uh, by his action to take that humanity to himself. And, and we then have, you know, if you go back to Matthew 1, particularly Luke 1, we see how this happened, right? So you have the biblical grounds. How did the word become flesh? How did the Son of God take to himself a human nature? Well, we have the agency of the Spirit, you know, the Father who sends the Son, the agency of the Spirit upon a virgin, upon Virgin Mary. And that's very, very important. The virgin conception, we talk about it as the virgin birth, but the virgin conception is not some minor point. Right? 
It's not some dispensable point that, well, just hold on to the resurrection, but you can deny the virgin conception. You do not have the Jesus of the Bible without the virgin conception. So that the means by which the word took to himself our humanity was triune agency. Right? Uh, the father through the son, the son takes to himself that by the spirit. And the emphasis in, in both Matthew 1, but particularly Luke 1, in uh, Gabriel's discussion with Mary of how this is going to happen, it speaks about the Holy Spirit overshadowing you. And the, what will be born is the Son of God, and all, of course, the, even the language of the Holy Spirit there is, is rich in Old Testament teaching, and of course, we know the Spirit to be the third person of the Godhead, and in that taking to himself a human nature, we then read in Luke 2.52, so that's another crucial text that shows itself in the entire Gospels, right? Jesus grew in, he was born, and then he grew in wisdom, stature, favor with God and man. This has to mean that the Son of God took to himself a full humanity. Right? So without sin, that's important, and a full humanity. He grew in stature, which certainly would refer to bodily growth, but he grew in wisdom. Uh, that means he had to have a human will. He had to have a human mind. He had to be fully human. So the Son of God took to himself a body and a soul. That's what later Chalcedon will say. But where are they getting that from? Well, they're getting it from Luke 1, Luke 2, and the entire uh, presentation of Christ. And then you think of other texts that unpack uh, the eternal Son who's taken on our humanity by the agency of the Spirit uh, through a Virgin Mary who became fully human. You think of Philippians 2. So there you have the emphasis on both the eternal Son who, in taking on our humanity, did so in order to save us, so that uh, he who is in the very nature, form of God, um, so it's speaking of the full deity of the Son, the full equality with the Father, um, humbled himself, uh, emptied himself is the language, but the emptying is by taking to himself a human nature. It's not that he's losing his deity, setting that aside, none of that is true. But what he's doing is he's taking to himself another nature, a human nature. And we see that in the Gospels and how that happened. But he did so in order to be obey for us, right? In order to humble himself in obedience, even to death on a cross. And so his whole life was an act of obedience. His whole death was an act of obedience. We speak of this in terms of his act of impassive obedience uh, for us. And in that obedience, uh, you have in uh, verses 9 to 11, the father exalts him. Now, this isn't that he is now wasn't deity before and so on. This is speaking of his work so that he's exalted as our covenant head, as the last Adam by his work for us. So that uh, it's interesting to see the, the verbs that are used in verses 6 through 8. It's the verbs of, of the son of God taking to himself our human nature, the verbs refer to the Son. The Son does that, right, in relation to the Father and Spirit. But then in 9 through 11, it's the action of the Father, exalting him, giving him a name, so that in this sense, Scripture will teach that the eternal Son takes on our humanity and becomes Son. Uh, the eternal Son in that humanity wins for us our salvation. The eternal Son who is Lord, uh, also by his work as a human, 
right, for us uh, also becomes Lord, right? And scripture holds both of those together tied to his eternality of son and also his work for us. Colossians 1 is another text that is crucial. I've alluded to it already, but Colossians 1, 15 to 20, but 15 through 17 speak of the Son of God as the image of the invisible God. That's a full reference to his deity. Uh, there's distinction. Image is distinction, yet of the invisible God speaks of him as having the same nature um, and, and so on. And of course, that's borne out in the fact that he is the firstborn of creation. Now, firstborn of creation doesn't mean first to exist. Firstborn in this context means priority over, having preeminence. Now, why is that the case? Because verse 16 tells us that he is the firstborn, he is the preeminent over creation because he's the creator of all things. <laughs> so here you have, again, um, uh, the father through the son creates. The grammar of the text is very, very important. Uh, the the um, the the uh, emphasis is on uh, the passive so that the son in the son, God creates and it's a divine passive. So it's father through son creates. And then you have in verse 17, father through son sustains. The son sustains all things. Uh, and of course, what's also important there is that his sustaining of the universe is put in the perfect tense. This is where grammar becomes very, very important. The perfect tense refers to past action that continues. And what's emphasis here, this is the grounding for the extra that we talked about, is that the Son of God uh, is the one that the Father through him has created, and we would say then by the Spirit, and Father through Son by the Spirit sustains the universe. But he not only has done that before the Incarnation, but he's also done so as the incarnate son. That's what Colossians 1.17 says. That action of sustaining the universe, what we call providence, is ongoing. Uh, the triune relations never change. The son of God always, even when he takes on our humanity, still is the one with the father and spirit who sustains the universe. Now, the only way that you can make sense of that is the extra, where the son is able to act in his human nature fully and he's human yet he is not totally limited to or what we say circumscribed by that human nature he also is able to act outside or extra as he's always always done so those are crucial texts that if you walk through them you're getting eternal son so the triune relations he's taken on our humanity he did so by the supernatural agency of the spirit in a virgin conception. What did that result in? A full humanity. He grew in wisdom, stature, favor with God and man. You see that picked up in Philippians 2, and it's for our salvation. He's done that to be our covenant head, to obey for us, to die for us. Uh, in that work that's been planned from eternity, uh, he accomplishes our salvation uh, he restores us to the very purpose of our creation, and that will become the emphasis in, say, uh, Hebrews 1 and Hebrews 2 that speaks of the Son as creator, the Son as sustainer, the exact representation, all that refers to his deity, yet he's the one who is appointed. That refers to his work. He's the one who sits down at the right hand of God. He is the one who, in Hebrews 2, 
fulfills Psalm 8. By his incarnation, he restores us to our humanity. And so out of that, right, you have the eternal son who's taken on image, our human image. He's the eternal image who's taken on our finite image in his humanity. He has restored us to what we were created to be in, 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 in Adam that has been lost uh, by his work. And uh, that is the glory of the Redeemer for us. And then you can unpack you know, all kinds of other passages, the I am passages that speak of uh, him as the Lord from the Old Testament, uh, taking on uh, the names of God, the prerogatives of God. You think of all the passages that speak of him as bringing the kingdom, forgiveness of sins, um, his, his actions of new creation. All of those are divine actions that he does as, uh, as our Lord and Savior. So those are key texts that set the parameters. So when you think of Kelsadon, one person, two natures, uh, you think of uh, the will issue, you think of the extra issue. All of that comes from a faithful exposition of Scripture, accounting for all that Scripture says regarding who Jesus is. Earlier in answering one of our questions, you mentioned the State of Theologies survey. Um, and as a pastor, I often get asked, why do the things I'm teaching matter? So this next question is kind of in the strain of both of those, those issues. So why is it important that we rightly understand the person of Christ? And what are the consequences if we get Christology or the person of Christ wrong? Well, I mean, the I mean, there's a number of things we could say, but the most important thing to, to say right off the bat, right? If you get Jesus wrong, life and death hangs on it. I mean, we cannot, you know, play games with this because uh, uh, we need a redeemer and we need a specific kind of redeemer uh, to know the true and living God. We must know him um, ultimately through the son. You think of uh, John 17, eternal life, right? Is that Jesus says that they may know you, the father, right? And the Lord Jesus whom you've sent. So ultimately the knowledge of Christ properly is to know the God of the Bible truly and to uh, know uh, what saving, what salvation is all about and to have a redeemer. So this is why uh, any kind of false teaching of Christ, you think of, you know, you think of the various cults, Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or Church of Christ, or then you think of Islam's view of Jesus and all that. What does it do? Well, it gives us a false Jesus and it gives us no savior. We're worshiping ultimately, or we're thinking we know uh, an idol, uh, something of our own construction. And uh, that is why life and death hangs on this. So first, I mean, for salvation purposes, for the truth of the knowledge of God purposes, to know our creator and redeemer properly. I mean, this is <clears throat> why it's so self-foundational. So it's very, very concerning that our churches are not all of our churches, but, you know, many of our churches are so weak in this area. And then and then out of that, um, you know, it's 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 to grow in grace to, I mean, you know, to understand the person and then spilling over to his work is really the test case for all of your theological understanding. I mean, if you get Christology wrong, you're inevitably going to get your doctrine of God wrong. You know, you won't get the Trinity, Trinity right. And that's foundational. You're not going to understand ultimately why you need a redeemer salvation 
if you don't get him and his work right, you're going to lose the sufficiency of his work. Uh, and so you'll lose the doctrines of grace. You'll lose uh, salvation and not by works. I mean, all of these things go back to the foundation of who Christ is. Uh, it was one person writing church history said that uh, basically every heresy of the church goes back to a false understanding of who Jesus is. And uh, that's true. I mean, everything goes back to our doctrine of God. And of course, you can't have a proper Christian view of God without the person of Christ and that spilling over to his work. So this is why, right, in our churches, um, I even said in, in the person of Christ, and I'm, I'm really concerned to say it again, is that um, it's not enough just to confess things. I mean, we got to get that right. But uh, ultimately, Christ has to be central uh, in our life. And to, we're seeing the evangelical church, at least in, in uh, America, the Western world. I can't speak for everywhere in the world, but particularly in our context, the evangelical church is in big trouble. Uh, the evangelical church is concerned with everything, but it, that it should be everything it shouldn't be concerned with. Uh, it's not concerned with, you know, foundational doctrine and truth and the centrality of the gospel. We're consumed with the world's values. We're consumed with, you know, political liberation, all these things. And all those things will come out of a proper theology, but they're not first. And uh, if we don't get our view of, of God right, of Christ right, of salvation right, inevitably we'll be open to every wind of doctrine that blows our way and uh, that's i'm afraid what we're seeing in the churches we jump on all kinds of bandwagons and causes and uh, we may even have good intentions in those causes but if we lose the centrality of christ we'll lose the centrality of the knowledge of god that will affect our our not only knowledge of him but it'll affect our christian lives it'll affect our churches it'll affect our mission it'll affect everything so uh, life and death hangs on this. Our spiritual life uh, hangs on this. Uh, the life and health of the of the church and the good of the church hangs on this. And ultimately, the glory of God hangs on this. So um, I can't say it enough that we've got to get our Christology right. Hmm. Amen. And as you emphasized in that last answer, this is an important topic that we need to study. You have written multiple books on this subject that we plan to link to in the show notes of this episode. But besides your book, what resources would you recommend for further study on this subject? Yeah, there's, you know, there's the throughout the history of the church, right? Uh, there's so many good books, right? So, I mean, you have contemporary books. I do think on, on this issue to go back and, and read even the classics of the church, right? I mean, on the doctrine of the Trinity and, and, and then as it comes over into Christology, right? Uh, there has been, you know, a real uh, agreement in the history of the church. That's not true of every doctrine, right? So we have to, you know, fight for areas of uh, Reformation view of justification or Reformation view of scripture and, and, and so on. But on this area, there's been so much that's been written well in the history of the church. So, you know, if we were to um, encourage some good reading, you know, I think uh, just starting off with some of the early church fathers and, and what they wrote. So Athanasius, for instance, on the incarnation, it's not that long, but it's a good little work that uh, you see him in the midst of the Arian controversy and what he's saying. Uh, uh, Cyril of Alexandria on the unity of Christ, you know, another good little book. It's not, they're not long, but they're, they're really helpful. Um, if you can get a hold of even uh, some of Augustine's writings on the Trinity, he talks about uh, very foundational issues of the Trinity, but Christology and Biblical exegesis is is well done. Um, 
uh, even Thomas Aquinas's works on 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 Christology, right? You have to be careful with Aquinas on his sacramental theology, his views of the church, and 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 so on. But uh, you know, he formulates things pretty well that that uh, is is working within an orthodox uh, frame. Kelvin, obviously, his institutes uh, his section on on Christology, uh, picking up some of of John Owen, um, you know, Francis Turretin. I mean, these are historical works. As you move to our day. Uh, the sections in um, Herman Bavinck's theology is, is just wonderful on the person and work of Christ. Uh, Gerhardus Voss, uh, who has his little reformed dogmatics, there's a whole volume on Christology, just a wonderful little book. And then there's other books, you know, my book tries to bring this up to date, but uh, Donald McLeod is, is, is pretty good on, on the person of Christ. Um, you know, contemporary application of of Christology for our culture, David Wells's book, Above All Earthly Powers. Um, uh, Michael Reeves has, you know, some pretty good books on the Trinity and, and Christology as well. So those are just, you know, through the whole history of the church, there's certain classics that really need to be read, uh, modern forms of the books, but pick books that are solid, that are historically orthodox, don't get into uh, in any kind of aberrant uh, kind of view, they're not worth it. So we have been talking about the person of Jesus, the person of Christ. What final encouragements do you have concerning this topic of discussion? Well, I mean, I think the the final encouragement is to, um, you know, make sure that uh, we know the Jesus of the Bible, right? We know him uh, individually, right? That he is our Lord and Savior, that uh, that is just... We can talk uh, a lot about, you know, theology and this type of thing, but we have to make sure that we own it ourselves. I mean, I grew up in a Christian home and I had a pretty good, strong theological background. That didn't make me a Christian, right? You have to own it yourself. So make sure that Jesus, right, uh, you know, the entire triune God, but particularly, uh, you know, God in, in and through Christ is your Lord, your Savior. He's precious to you, growing in grace, uh, reading uh, scripture, never, never substitute anything for scripture over and over again, glorying in him, meditating upon him, uh, living your life for him. I mean, all of that is is crucial. And uh, out of that uh, relationship we have with him, I mean, obviously in our churches, uh, encouraging sound exposition, teaching of the gospel, uh, which will then spill over into mission and uh, evangelism and so on. So final encouragement is to know Christ, right, to uh, to set him First, uh, to to be like the Ephesian church in, in uh, Revelation 2 that was sound in doctrine, sound in life, but not be like them in, uh, in, in forgetting their first love, which I think ultimately is tied to their love for Christ and love for the gospel. So uh, we want to have sound theology, sound life, and, and Christ at the center. And that's what we need to be aiming for in our individual lives, our family lives, our church lives, right? That's what the church desperately needs. And as we face potential challenges ahead, uh, it's only uh, glory in Christ, knowing him, trusting him, walking with him that will sustain you through whatever comes your way. Amen. We've been speaking with Dr. Wellam on the person of Christ. He has given us uh, a biblical explanation of the orthodox view of the person of Christ. We've spent some time discussing 
um, some heretical views that have popped up throughout the history of the church. And we've talked about how the early church has uh, articulated a biblical doctrine of the person of Christ. And we want to recommend uh, the books that uh, Dr. Wellam has written. We will link to those in the show notes. We thank you for listening. And Dr. Wellam, thank you so much for taking the time to record it with us on this subject. Well, thank you for having me. And uh, anytime you want to talk about the glory of Christ, uh, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be here. There's no, no greater subject. So thank you very much. Amen. And to our listeners, we wish you grace and peace. For additional content, check out our blog ministry at covenantconfessions.com. Also, keep up with our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Next, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Lastly, thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.